This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Greece and the Reinvention of Politics by Alain Badou, translated by David Broder. In this book, one of the world's leading radical philosophers analyzes the failure of the Syriza experience in Greece. Over the last six years, Greece has provided the world with an open-air political lesson. The country's deep economic and social crisis has exposed the fundamental contradictions of the European Union, and indeed, the capitalist world as a whole. It has been a test case for movements seeking to put an end to the authoritarian anarchy of neoliberal capitalism. The Greek resistance to EU institutions and financial market hegemony offered a beacon of hope. Yet the movementist politics of 2011 could not build anything lasting, and Syriza's efforts as a party of government soon led to impasse. For Elan Badou, it is not enough to mourn this defeat. We must understand why such a vigorous opposition could fail. Greece, and the reinvention of politics, argues that an opposition of real consequence must revive the communist hypothesis, the vision of an alternative state structure. The orienting maxims that this hypothesis provides light the way for effective political action. Written in the storm of the crisis, the interventions collected in this book offer a path out of our contemporary powerlessness. Greece and the Reinvention of Politics by Alain Badou, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. I hope you've had a chance to listen to my last interview with sociologist Jennifer Carlson, who has done some exceptional work about how American gun culture gets built from the ground up. Today, I'm continuing this deeper look into guns with Patrick Blanchfield, a freelance writer and associate faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, who you might recognize from a recent interview on this show on his N Plus One review of the book Fire and Fury. He's also a really smart thinker on guns and has written two new pieces on just that. One at The Intercept on the dystopian implication of arming teachers and another at New York Magazine, which may or may not be out by the time you hear this, on neoliberalism and the political culture of guns. Before I get this thing started, please support the left-wing podcast media you consume, particularly this podcast. You can do so at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. I started out as a local alt-weekly journalist in Philly covering criminal justice and education and never imagined that people on the internet would voluntarily provide my wages. After all, the internet has in so many ways been so horrible for journalism, especially local and state journalism. But the response to this podcast has been tremendous, and I'm grateful that the analyses my guests provide have proven so useful to all of you out there fighting to transform society, and that you, the listeners, have made this show financially viable. Wow. More of a digression than I planned, but uh, please and thank you for your support. And here's Patrick Blanchfield. Patrick Blanchfield, welcome back to The Dig. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure, man. You have two pieces on guns in America, and I'd like to start with the one you have out, or perhaps it's coming out soon, we'll see, at New York Magazine. And it's on neoliberalism and gun culture, and it's really excellent. You write that neoliberalism shapes our reactions to gun violence in general and school shootings in particular. And there's a lot there. So before we get into it, maybe let's define our terms or term. What is neoliberalism? That as a term is always super contested uh, and used polemically in American discourse in ways that can be very um, counterproductive. And maybe in some ways, like this is sort of a, a good entree to talking about neoliberalism is how one of its impacts, one of the ways in which you know you're dealing with neoliberals, uh, or at least with the art, with the culture of, 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 of like, like some sort of cultural neoliberalism, which maybe is like the analog to like cultural Marxism or something, is when ideological terms with political meaning get more and more progressively hollowed out, um, such that the question of what neoliberalism is becomes, well, someone once called me a neoliberal, and I don't self-identify as one, therefore this term must not exist. <laughs> right? This is like a, a, as though um, meaningful terms that describe political economy and ideology are just boiled down to our subjective experience of them, right? So, so I'll, just, I'll flag that. Like, this is a polemical term frequently. And Speaking of New York Magazine. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I, I'm curious how that'll play out. Jonathan Chait. <laughs> yeah, uh, but 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 like, but but independent of that, uh, the way in which neoliberal the, the term neoliberal has become like this shuttlecock used in debates since the 2016 primaries. Um, what I think is uh, the the best way to think, and of course there is a robust bibliography of thinkers from David Harvey to Wendy Brown to you know you to, to Sarah Ahmed to any of different people that we could we could sort of like name check and I'm willing to do that if necessary though I'd rather not. Um, <laughs> no. no need. People okay, can well, just like, check the check the archives of this show. <laughs> exactly. Great. I, I'll, I'll, I'll share a bibliography if needed. Um, but like what, what what I mean by neoliberalism just as a heuristic, but also as a term describing something that's in the world, is at once a way of doing economics, but that's also a way of doing politics sort of materially speaking, right? It's a, it's a preference for certain types of policies, for certain types of developments and ways of, of organizing resources and institutions, but it's also an ideology for how those things should be distributed and also just what constitutes the political as such. To be more specific, uh, I would describe neoliberalism as a, uh, a particular form of capitalism, right, which has unfolded since the 1970s or late 60s in a variety of global contexts around Latin America, the U.S., parts of Europe, even China and elsewhere, depending on how you want to like get fine-grained about your analysis, but that essentially emphasizes, one, uh, financialization and the flows of capital across national borders, but also, two, deregulation, right, the, 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 and three, in a related way, uh, a sort of a steady recession of state responsibilities for problems or a steady withdrawal of state responsibility for various tasks in favor of market-based solutions. So one way to think about neoliberalism is that it's a way of viewing governance primarily in terms of the market, in terms of logics of efficiency, in terms of logics of resources, of people as resources, and in which 
what the state does is continuously being withdrawn in favor of privatization and individual responsibility. Right. And one of what makes it so particularly toxic and so, so corrosive as an ideology, and even more so than like Fordist mid-century capitalism, is that it simply is presented not even as an ideology, but just as the way things are. Right. One of the one of the one of the perverse features of neoliberalism and particularly in America is that we, we emphasize solutions and innovation and disruption so much that we we stop questioning whether or not a given problem should exist in the first place, whether it be, you know, like being like, well, here's an awesome startup that's going to sell you water in Flint. And like, well, wait a minute, maybe my water shouldn't be poisoned to begin with. Or here's a really cool way that you can organize your HMO bills. I'm like, well, no, maybe the problem is that I'm being, I should have universal health care in the first place. But like this way in which what should be a properly political problem is instead posed as a technical problem to be rectified by ever-shrinking institutions on the part of the government and, on the, on the other hand, ever-expanding private industry and individual sort of misery and responsibility on the other. And so mass shootings of, of children in, in a public space, a matter that's political, that, a, a political matter if there ever was one, becomes shunted off into, into somewhere else or, or a few different places, both technocratic and maybe otherwise. Um, and... It's as NRA Vice President Wayne Lapierre put it, you know, it's a matter of evil walking among us, not not something that should be politicized. And that's not just something that Wayne Lapierre said and that the NRA says, but it's something that, as you note in your piece, a Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee staffer encouraged Democrats not to do, not to politicize a tragedy. Tell me a little bit about how neoliberalism constrains what is political in the case of of guns. So yeah, this is um this this I this even this very phrase like politicization or like the injunction not to politicize betrays at it, like <laughs> yeah. neoliberal ideology at its purest, right? This idea being like no, no, no. Dealing with this problem that affects you, your happiness, your well-being, the safety of your community, the welfare of your children, feeling strongly about that and wanting to do something dramatic about it, that's political and bad, right? And and, and then what's the, the posture that we're supposed to have vis-a-vis these things in, in hearing this from, you know, wise centrists or pundits or whatever, is a sort of type of passivity where it's like, well, let's think about the best possible solutions to make this more efficient and bearable, right? Um, now, more granularly in terms of, like, the gun situation, right, and mass shootings in particular, and I, I'm thinking here, too, of your interview with, with Jennifer Carlson, which was just fantastic, um, is this idea that we, certain types of violence are going to happen. This is, like, the, 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 dressed up in the theological language of, of, of the NRA and, and Wayne LaPierre is just this basic proposition, which is that gun violence is going to happen. Right. And in different ways, like centrist, and I'm not saying when LaPierre is neoliberal, per se, I can stipulate that. I'll, I'll talk more about that later. But like the idea that we're just always going to have gun violence, right? Gun violence is just part of the way things are. It's naturalized as part of the order of things. It's not even really a political problem. It's like a fire or it's, it's like an earthquake. It's a tragedy. It's an act of God, right? So if it's just a given and not some, and thinking of it otherwise is to politicize it, well, what are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to come up with various solutions around it that ultimately don't really change the, the, the fact that the problem exists in the first place, that, that basically make it more bearable for people with the resources to deal with it. And in the case of school, and this is, you know, this is, this is 
as Dr. Carlson talks about in her work on, on civilian gun carry, right? Like as people feel that they can no longer trust the police and as they themselves have a feeling of like um, crisis and a lack of earning potential, et cetera, what, you know, as institutions literally withdraw and people are less in a state of emotional precariousness, what do they do? Well, they sort of self-deputize as agents of the state who walk around with guns. Right. And so here we, we see we see a sort of mirror of this. Right. The idea that the, the point of intervention that we should be doing is arming teachers. Teachers need to be armed because that's the way to deal with the problem of people with, with, with assault rifles walking in and just like massacring children. Again, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing where it's like in other countries. And this is also part of what makes neoliberalism a complicated heuristic is that to other countries, that's unthinkable. Right, is on the face of it, but also talking about this in terms of neoliberalism, that's just simply unthinkable. But so too is like you know, toxic lead water throughout our throughout our inner city centers. Right, it, it's a way in which like we have we, in America we have these problems which are about violence and oppression and just people living in squalor and pain. And our reaction to it is well, who can we give a slight bonus to in order to carry a weapon or to maybe you know a discount for someone who's going to sell water purifiers? It, it becomes essentially a whole organization of all these economic forces and personal responsibilities rather than ever talking about the problem as a properly political one. You, you write about the way that neoliberalism shapes what are acceptable proposals or ideas within conventional mainstream discourse. And you have a really interesting point here about the fact that the the maximalist anti-gun position, which it would be banning all guns, and I'm not saying that either of us are advocating that, but it's a position that you'd think on some level uh, would be part of the debate given all the Americans that shoot each other all the time and that clearly that's a problem. It's just not – it's verboten in political debates in the United States. Not – you know, no one in mainstream – the mainstream gun control movement – and there's not – isn't really a radical gun control movement, unfortunately. But no one in the mainstream gun control movement is arguing that. By contrast, you point out right-wing maximalist positions, however far-fetched, like eliminating the minimum wage, are very much present. And and even if those arguments don't win out, they, they shape the, the debate and the politics of this country in profound ways. Yeah, I think that asymmetry is really striking, right? You know, the, 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 there's a pache whether or not we ourselves want to support it. The idea that someone should be like, well, we should disarm everyone. And this is, I think, something that you get at, in your really fantastic piece, right? If you're in these times, right? The idea of, like, you know, of, of, of total disarmament, the idea that there shouldn't that a free society shouldn't be one where people are walking around shooting each other frequently, um, and that maybe eliminating guns as such could be fine, uh, would be a, would be a means towards that end. It's just unthinkable, right? It's, it's simply not stated. And it, when you compare that to and this 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 preemptive, basically, what you have is almost like this. If you should forgive me, getting a little psychoanalytic here, you have this like preemptive self castrating <laughs> language of reasonability. Well, of course, I'm not talking about taking away all your guns, right? I'm talking about just taking away the guns used by bad people, which in a weird way both mirrors and gives ground to the maximalist hardball position on the right. Um, well, so that's a really interesting point because yeah. the right wing talks – it's not that it's invisible – that gun com- total gun confiscation and total gun bans are invisible. They're just invisible in terms of people actually proposing them in the right wing NRA discourse. That's all they talk about is that, is that what the gun control people want to do is take your guns. They get out ahead of it by putting it 
putting a hystericized version, caricatured version of it in the mouths of their opponents who would never say it anyways, and then marshalling support for years against a phantom option, much in the same way as like, you know, people will, and this is again, talking about like ideological hollowing out of terms, much in the same way in which people are like, Bernie Sanders is, you know, is a fucking Maoist and his universal health care is going to destroy everyone. Like, no, that means nothing. Like he, he's a moderate social Democrat, right? But somehow through the, through this con Constant rhetorical, very strategically done, but this rhetorical work that's also about like metabolizing these terms emotionally. Certain types of we, we have these like shadow boxing collectively against these phantom extremes, which we can which, which generate these terms like communist, socialist, total gun ban, which we levy against things that are actually quite reasonable and not that radical. But what this basically does is it shrinks the horizon of political possibility ever more towards the right. Whereas meanwhile, on the right, you know, that's not just abortion. Like you can look to be able to. Yeah, the minimum wage stuff, but also even on guns, there are a lot of people who want to like argue for against the elimination of the National Firearms Act, right? Who feel that we should have be able to, you should be able to own a machine gun if you want. Hell, the most recent or, or a fucking tank. Exactly, but also like even more like it's a it's a fairly mainstream position among a lot of Republican legislators that silencers and suppressors should be made widely legal. Now again, like I'm not say, I, I think that I can get into the technical stuff about that, but I, I almost don't want to. Like I just want to stipulate like, or perhaps take another example that we should have nationwide reciprocal concealed carry, like totally the total concealed carry reciprocity, right? Which would mean in practice that people from states where there's no license required to carry a gun could carry a gun anywhere else in the country. That is an extremist position, but it's a mainstream position on the right, and there isn't any compensatory balance on the left, or rather at least on the Democrats. There was at one time, right, during the 1970s and early 80s, there were a lot of groups that were pushing hard for coalitions to ban handguns or for legislation to um, to push back. They, like, it's basically, there were absolutist maximalist gun control positions. Um, but largely because of calculi political uh, reasonableness, they sort of neutered themselves on this way. And in fact, there's one really good example of this. At one point during, uh, during the presidential debates, I believe, uh, Hillary Clinton talking to Donald Trump, the, 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 the question of the 2005 D.C. versus I think 2008 or 2005 D.C. v. Heller case came up. Mm -hmm. um, and she was she offered this history where like, Trump was like, you don't want to take away your guns or whatever and she was like, Well well let me let me tell you what really happened in the nineteen seventies. And she it was like when D C came up with a law that because they were very concerned about kids finding weapons in their homes owned by their parents and getting killed and so it was a safe storage law. This is what she said. This is what she presented as fact as why this court, as why there was this law, which was later challenged in the Supreme Court in the D.C. v. Heller case that then gave us the individual right to bear arms in, the, in its current mode. This was nonsense. It was, it was, it was a, either she didn't know what she was talking about or she just bald-facedly lied. Because if you look in the 1970s, if you read interviews with people that created that legislation in D.C., the purpose of that law was not safe storage to keep kids away from accidental firearms deaths. It was to create a law that would be a laboratory for other states to, to adopt to produce a nationwide handgun ban. Yeah. And the fact that she... I still, I, you can hear me getting angry about this, but I don't understand. I still don't quite process what what her goal was in just 
presenting this inaccuracy in this way that was so consoling. We just want to take care of the kids. It simultaneously erased the history, which anyone who cares about this issue would know about, so it completely alienated anybody. But it totally also represented this kind of neoliberal like, like erasure of the horizon of political possibility. Right? Like, we just want to make sure that the right people have guns at the right times. So I'm like, okay, well, you know, it's not exactly the most stirring moral position, but if that's what she felt she needed to do in order to debate Donald Trump, then I guess that's where we're at. And that's kind of sad. And it's that very narrowing of the possible political horizons on guns, but as you point out on everything, by that both people like Hillary Clinton and people like Paul Ryan take part in and Obama and establishment Democrats and Republicans for decades. It's that same narrowing of the political horizon in general, as Jennifer Carlson points out, that that fuels the centrality of gun culture and the attractiveness of living an armed life. When so little in big picture is possible, well, you might as well strap one on and get ready for the fucking apocalypse. Have a sense of control over your immediate surroundings, right? Yeah. It, it, this way in which, like, I, I, I've had I've had occasion for, for work to be in fairly high, you know, in kind of like constrained situations where I've actually spent time with you, know, like, gun on my hip for a couple of days at a time, and just like, I, I don't speak to credentializing authority in, in, in the same way other people do. I don't want to do that, but like, I will notice, like, in my own experience, but also in all the conversations I've had with concealed carriers and, and that Jennifer Carlson has is, is, is documented so extensively, is this way in which it puts you in this state of constant mental awareness. As well, it should, right? Like you're constantly in condition yellow. You're scanning exits. You're looking to see who else might be armed. You're wondering, you know, you have to maintain, make sure you don't sit in the wrong way so you drop your weapon. Like you have to be exercise, quote unquote, responsibility, right? And responsibility is a good thing, abstractly speaking. But also just it's interesting how, one, this is a responsibility that you can exercise. So it gives you a, it gives you something to do. It gives you a way to relate to the space in which you exist, right, into your own body, into like potential scenarios. But also makes you feel good because like you know you're being protective of other people, right? Um, but also that feeling it simultaneously gives you an answer to, but also mirrors this feeling of constantly being on edge that something bad could happen, which we always have anyways. Right, like in this post nine eleven world, fifteen fucking sixteen fucking years ago, um, but also in this world where jobs are, of, of temporary work of, 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 of the gig economy and the sort of incredible movements of the markets and just the sense that you always have to need to move and be available for everything of flex time and all this other shit, we are constantly in some ways always metaphorically scanning the exits and always waiting for something to go wrong, and so here at least is something that you can do with your body and an object that you spend several hundred dollars on that makes you feel like you have some control and you can almost play act this broader emotional sense of vulnerability and anxiety. And that's really powerful. Because talking about precarity is not just, it's a way not just to talk about how too many people are way too poor in the United States. It's about a way to describe how economically uncertain things are for everyone. Exactly. And, and this is something I, I've written about elsewhere, too, where there's a way in which, like, it, it, everyone is just trying to get theirs. You just want to be, basically, you just want to get, like, this is like the deal that neoliberalism offers you specifically vis-a-vis -vis gun violence, right? You can, by buying the right products and taking on the right behaviors, you can personally maximize your chances of surviving 
the inevitable or at least likely encounter with lethal violence. Yeah, you write about the one thing that happens when you under neoliberalism with the curtailment of government is that it offers an opportunity for, quote, other players to pick up the slack and make a buck. And you write about this. I mean, obviously, there's this burgeoning market. Uh, well, not burgeoning, like long existing, very large market that goes up and down in guns. Um, but there's also this burgeoning market in school security equipment, like bulletproof whiteboards and stuff for parents to outfit their kids with, like bulletproof backpacks and folders. The market, both sort of in purposeful and, I guess, incidental ways, wins big on when what we imagine government can do is dramatically curtailed. Exactly. We are. You cease to be like. Look, I'm not. I'm not going to be nostalgic for like the perfect nationalist Fordist state, right? I think that had all sorts of problems too. But I will say that under neoliberalism, where previously, like some of us got to be citizens, right? You know, who had needs and rights and whatever, who that were deserve of, of reciprocal entitled obligations upon each other and from the government. Um, the model under neoliberalism is you're a consumer first and foremost. Uh, you need to maximize your opportunities and be a site of minimized government expenditure. And so what that means specifically in the context of gun violence is, you know, you get to, you should buy a gun too, right? You should get insurance for when you use it, if you use it. You should be, if you're a parent, you should be buying these this gear for your kids. Don't you care about your kids? Of course you love your kids and you got to buy them. But backpack though, like it, it, it's, it's, it's a series, it's a whole series of really elaborate traps by which a thoroughly unnatural order becomes naturalized in second nature. Um, and it's incredibly powerful and it, it, it's because it, it does, it, it does catch up in its flow, all these positive emotions too. Like, of course you want to care for your kids. Of course I want to care to protect my community, right? These are not necessarily toxic in and of themselves, but the way that they're transmuted for the purposes of profit um, are, 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 are horrifying and obscene. And the the individualism at play here and embedded in this notion that government can cannot play a role in that is that you are responsible for your own security. And that also by by implication is about blaming victims for for what happens to them. I mean, the the, the, the perpetrator gets the the most blame, but the victim um, gets a decent amount as well. And I think notably, the NRA's crime prevention program is called Refuse to Be a Victim. And going back to the my interview with Jennifer Carlson, this really all echoes this pervasive gun culture categorization of people into into these three parts, wolves, sheep or sheeple and sheepdogs. Which one do you want to be? things too, where it's like that, 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 that conceptual division, which, you know, comes from a variety of places, but ultimately, I think you know, put on, on, on Lieutenant David Dan Grossman, right, who's also a trainer of police, and, and, and has, that ideology also pervades our security state too. It does point to how these sort of ideological configurations, which are also ways of life and profit streams, um, straddle inst- official institutions, private industry, and also personal life choices. Um, and again, I, I just to give perhaps another example of how this, of how problems get constrained and how we focus on certain things to the exclusion of others. Consider too, in the wake of all these school shootings, the the discourse on mental health. Right, people, we need to do something about mental health. Says everyone, right? Says Trump. Says a lot of other people. Um, what you have to wonder, well, what does that mean in practice? Well, de facto, when people talk about mental health, what they mean is interventions 
to stop school shooters from becoming school shooters, right? So it already sees the fact that there's going to be this class of young people that decide to go on rampages. We need to identify and profile them first, right? So quote-unquote mental health becomes just narrowly a problem of, well, are we applying the right surveillance technologies? Are students reporting on each other well enough? Are parents reporting on their kids? Are teachers doing enough work as surveillance professionals? No, and again, like it implicitly here, it blames all these people for if they don't do their job and these things happen anyways. But also, well, it's, it's an extension of the carceral gun control regime, which is the actually existing gun control regime, which is all about not dealing with the production, distribution, and overall prevalence of guns in our society, but policing and incarcerating what the NRA likes to call the bad guys with the gun. That's the black gangbanger, but it's also the 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 the, the pathological crazy monster um, who shoots up a school. That's precisely right. It's, it's about isolating bad actors and finding other individuals who can be held personally responsible responsible for their failure or other individuals who can innovate and step up and fix the problem. But in both cases, what we're dealing with are individuals, not structures, and we're playing triage rather than doing anything transformative or better, right? Because again, like the, the mental health thing is, again, really striking too because it's also like if – Mental, when mental health just means cutting down the number of school shooters through expanding the surveillance state, right, what falls out of that is any consideration of, you know, maybe mental health means something bigger. Like what about the mental health of all the kids who we put through these countless active shooter drills? What, what about the mental health of the teachers who we ask to be the first responders here, right? Um, and that in, or even what about like our collective mental health as a society might be at play in the fact that we keep churning out young people who go on murder sprees. But instead, no, the problem of mental health in this neoliberal political framework is just narrowly dealing with the symptom, not dealing with the structure and not dealing with the cause. I want to quote from your article at a little bit of length on this issue of active shooter drills because it's something that I wasn't really aware of until until recently that are just incredibly pervasive in American schools. I never went through one as a student, but reading through the descriptions of them, um, it's, a, it, it's pretty easy to imagine what that might feel like as a child or as a teacher. Um, and so I want to read from your, your New York Magazine piece. These drills, which can involve children as young as kindergartners hiding in closets and toilet stalls, and can even include simulated shootings, are not just traumatic and of dubious value. They are also an educational enterprise in their own right, a sort of pedagogical initiation into what is normal and to be expected. Very literally, Americans teach their children to understand the intrusion of rampaging killers with assault rifles as a random force of nature analogous to a fire or an earthquake. This seems designed to foster in children a consciousness that is at once hypervigilant and desperate, but also morbid and resigned. In other words, to mold them into perfectly docile neoliberal citizen consumers. Very well put. And so not only are these active shooter drills, you know, prima facie, dystopian but but they are really what you're pointing out is that they're really disciplining children into becoming a new kind of citizen and a new kind of subject which also 
you know, echoes what what Jennifer Carlson was talking about in terms of her research on the NRA training operation, which doesn't do so, teach so much in the way of what you might need to do with a gun in terms of holding it in your hands and shooting it if you're actually needed to use a gun in self-defense, but really spends a lot of time instilling a certain type of thinking about what it means to be a good guy with a gun. It's kind of terrifying, right? And in some ways, it just puts down on the micro level a lot of what has been classic neoliberal do- like doctrine on a macro level, right? Like you're thinking about like the shock, the shock doctrine. I think here, Naomi Klein's work, or the idea of like never letting a good disaster go to waste, right? We have both created this crisis, right, which is mass shootings, right, and school shootings specifically, over exaggerated as a crisis because statistically speaking, these are fairly rare events. Right. And then also proceeded to develop an entire apparatus for like profit making, but also molding the subjectivities of people in line with that broader crisis. Right. So these children are put in this position of, you know, here, here are some things that you as a child will now. And again, it's, just, it's hard. It's hard to understand the question of race, because like in some ways, like a lot of this violence and precarity only matters now because it's being inflicted on people who would not expect it. Right. Or were not brought up to expect it anyways. But um, or we hadn't ha- didn't have to expect the children, but like you know, like it is now a reasonable thing, uh, apparently, for a a child in a relatively low crime place, right, to expect to in their daily routine, one, manage school lunch debt, and two, be prepared to be the one who catches a bullet from the active shooter, you know, to save their friends. And you and you're right. It's it's hard to imagine a more nutshell image of contemporary American neoliberalism than this, demanding our citizens, training our children, to throw themselves like human sandbags against a problem that we decline to attempt to solve. Wow. I mean, that's, that's, that's right, right on. <laughs> well, that, that, yeah, and then, like, the sandbags, like, again, like, there, there are lots of analogies here between, um, between gun violence and climate change, right? Like, these are, these are, multi, these are massive problems that are perpetuated because of vested financial interest and political careerism by our leaders, um, which are going to, which already have a massive body count, right? You know, the waters are rising, uh, quite literally. Uh, and the neoliberal solution is, well, here's a way for us to make some money, and here's some individual things that you need to do. Recycle more, right? <laughs> um, but, uh, like, innovate in, this some, in some way, when in fact what we actually need is structural change like the the, the the problems cease to be it's and you can see how incredibly terminal this is like there is a way in which like neoliberalism is just death drive politics for technocrats right it's instead of our dealing with the gun violence or the rising waters or the or any of these other things it just becomes well you know maybe someone can innovate a cool app here or maybe you as an individual just you know you need to work a little harder and make sure that you don't drown or you don't get shot and again like this is not necessarily like capitalism has always been terrible there have been many other different kinds of capitalism equally horrible but there's something about the combination of just the givenness of well this is the world we live in and the like let's make some money here and the like well you a good person who's a good citizen is going to fix this problem themselves that's a particular there's some particular brand of of cynicism and resignation and just tragedy there that's heartbreaking. And part of what's so cool about the way these kids have reacted to it, uh, and I think here are the Parkland kids specifically, but also too, like generations of 
of urban black and Latino youth activists is that they've refused to accept that as the status quo. And that's like um, one of the few ways of, like, I, I see these department kids in my feed and they just give me life. But like one of the few things that's going on, and it's, it's very paradoxical, is despite our having raised kids to expect this as, as unchangeable, a lot of them are like, no, fuck that. We're going to change this. And that's just so inspiring. It's uh, socialism or barbarism, barbarism being bulletproof folders made of 100% recycled materials. <laughs> yes, pretty much. You mentioned the national security state, and I mentioned the carceral state. And one thing that's troubling and interesting here is how selectively the right is when it comes to what problems government is deemed capable of solving and and how it is selective. Um, and not just the right, but the, the 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 entire kind of political order as shaped powerfully by by the right and the liberals who strategically pursue the right. But so, for example, terrorism, according to this logic, can be crushed by overwhelming military force, and crime can be solved through mass incarceration. But gun violence cannot be solved through any sort of regulation, major or minor, of guns. And this really fascinates me. This simultaneous affinity for the the carceral and imperial state on the one hand in gun culture and on the other hand this this libertarian celebration of individual gun ownership that has strong vigilante militia e anti-government overtones in in some in some corners i guess my question is is how do these two relate to each other are they incommensurable contradictions that just define our our times and that's why they don't make sense I think there are a lot of different ways to think about it, um, and that is like that's like a fundamental question. It's one I think about a lot too. Um, I also think frequently about there's an Onion article, and I'm going to misparaphrase the title, but it's something like we must honor and respect the troops and also hoard weapons with which to shoot them when they come for them. <laughs> like it's a kind of odd like double fine. Um, and I and actually I, I can think of actually in my own work having had a bunch of encounters with uh, this, this militia group called the Oath Keepers, with which you may be familiar, um, which is again a uh, just for the audience that may not know, is, is a organization of unclear size and loose ties, but also has a national presence uh, of quote-unquote first responders, which also is a term, by the way, that's very inflected by the security state, right? This idea that firemen, or fire people, I guess, and, and uh, medical personnel and cops, but now also teachers, right? The, the, the people who do these different jobs that are all very important all become subsumed under this broader category of essentially knee-jerk reactiveness, right? The first and responders, it's like, it's like oh, the people who respond to the crisis, right? And well, when's the crisis? Always. Um, but, but independent of that, like the, the Oath Keepers are this organization of first responders. They lean mainly to veterans, right? But they, but they also include EMS personnel and cops and whatever and former people in all these jobs. They all take this oath, um, which is all about – resisting various forms of government tyranny, right? Um, and I've actually had conversations with a couple of them who are quite interesting where they actually, you know, they have their own problems with the carceral state, though I think they're not so good on the issues of race, but that's a separate matter. But in any event, they take this multi-point pledge where it's like for scenarios in which they will refuse to serve and honor the Constitution itself. And one of the ones that they included is a list of their things. Is they're like, and they're all, they all interface with these like shit hits the fan scenarios that you may be familiar with on the far right. One of them and is like o- Obama rounding people up into FEMA camps. Exactly. Exactly. 
exactly. I, I, exactly. And you, you can find their, their pledge. Well, that's one of them. Like we will not, we will not round up people into camps, but also we will not, we will not tolerate the deployment of federal law enforcement into America's cities, etc. Like all this type of stuff, right? Very strikingly, after Trump was elected, right? Um, there, you may remember that he was floating these things about deploying the army to Chicago or some other shit because of gun violence there. Send in the right? feds. It was unclear which feds he was talking about, but that's, that's I think, right. I, yes, I think it turned out that it was the DEA, but <laughs> but yeah, sending in the feds or no, the ATF, ATF, I think, but or one of the yeah. two. I don't know, but go ahead. And, and it was unclear what they were going to do if they weren't doing already, but his whole thing was basically, well, time, time, time for jackboots, right? And, you know, I saw this, and I remembered the Oath Keeper Oaths, and so I started reaching out to people to, like, get comment on them, being like, so are you guys going to be in there preventing the deployment of these guys, uh, of jackboots in Chicago? And I didn't get any responses, but I did see a whole bunch of posting where it's like, we will go there and stand with the authorities against the gangbangers. Right. So what was previously anti-government resistance in principle and with this abstract language of liberty flipped over into paramilitary state supplement the moment the target changed and the person in the White House was different. The moment there's not right? a Muslim gets, in, the, in the Oval Office. Exactly. Not black, too. Like that's also like, – that's like, like, so that gets specifically at what you're saying where it's like this, this – this, the, the tension that we're witnessing right now between on the one hand pro-gun like – individualism that's very anti-state versus pro-gun individualism that's also very corporatist and pro-state and about self-deputizing. That has been there since the start of the American enterprise, since even beforehand. And I think here of the work of Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who argues this very eloquently, but you know, this thing has been on my radar for years too, and I've written about as well, and I think a lot of people will say. But the idea of to, to, un, seeing what appears now as a sort of an opposition or tension between supporting the state but also resisting the state makes a lot more sense if you go back to the original settler colonial context and also to like these deep structures of American masculine nationalist chauvinist ideology where the state literally was white guys self-deputizing to steal Indian land and catch slaves, right? So it, it's it, that's the – and it's as the state grows more complicated, as we grow more diverse, as we individualize in some ways. Like I think part of the neoliberal story is also about the elimination of the draft, right? Like I think the rise of gun culture is very tethered to the elimination of the draft, right? And the, the, the 70s and 60s is sort of like crucible for all that shit. But as the state becomes more, you know, diverse, at least in face, as its agents become more diverse, at least in terms of like their skin tone, um, you, these tensions start manifesting. Right, where now people in one breath can support the state and you know want to like shoot gangbangers for it, but also on the other thing can, can, can say that they oppose militant law enforcement. Right, and the through line there is simply that the structure has always been ultimately one of specifically white masculine entitlement to impose necropolitics on recalcitrant non-white bodies and women. So that's like the through line for you. Which yeah. is why we should never be surprised that the liberal fanatical commitment of and i'm you know capital l liberal if that's the right way to distinguish it commitment to the protection of of private property we should not be surprised that that is so often paired when necessary or convenient with authoritarian political forms that restrict access to the franchise or engage in outright violent repression exactly and this actually brings us back to this 
earlier question we were talking about, you know, the Heller case where it's like, who is the, who, who's the right to bear arms, right? And, and, and Trump's like saying everyone has an individual right to bear arms. It's great. And, and Hillary notably conceded that and says we have a right to bear arms too, but the question is how you store your guns, right? Note in, in both these cases, what's accepted is, the, is, is, the, is, the, is, the, is, is just that people should have guns to begin with and that that's totally okay. And I think that that indicates how baked in this fundamental idea is that there are certain people in our society who should be armed, that that includes a great many civilians. Just the the sheepdogs. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Sheepdogs, right? Or just, or just like or, – or responsible gun owners, right? But the idea that, 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 that there is someone other than just the state should be armed. On that, that includes a lot of the civilians, and that the, the, the case actually is if you have to make if you, if you don't want that, you have to make affirmatively to make the case. You can't just say that there's a principle that's wrong. Um, and you know, in some ways, like it's strange that both the not like the mainstream left and right, you know, the Democrats and Republicans both seem to grant this as a position that's somehow unquestionable, and they just dither over the details. But it makes a lot of sense if you go back to the roots of, and this is Dunbar Ortiz's critique, but also mine, right? Like that the, that the right to bear arms was always an individual right, right? Always existed as such because the individual in question was understood as, as a property owning man whose interests coincided with the maintenance of the state apparatus as one of white supremacist distribution of bodies. So that's like deep structure shit. I don't necessarily know how we change it, but that's your through line for you. Another carceral aspect of what's going on, you discuss in your piece for the the intercept, and it's the whole notion of of what what arming teachers to confront school shooters would mean. And you write that quote, easygoing talk of going on the offensive against schools ignores a blunt truth. Flooding America's classrooms with guns would almost certainly result in greater numbers of dead students. That's an important point, and it seems similar to a point that one could make about misunderstandings about what gun ownership does for people in general in terms of, like, what a gun in the home does for people. Guns in the home are often used in suicides, accidents, like your kids shooting themselves when you don't, uh, you know, secure your gun correctly, or domestic violence. Like a lot of the pushback I've received, I've received a good deal about this article. People being like, "Well, do you think like it's so disgusting that you would imagine the teachers are just going to start executing their black students, right? The white <laughs> teachers are going to start executing their black students, uh, and like that's which is it's amazing. Like, I've gotten that from some surprising quarters, right? But clearly, that's not again resist the like neoliberal resist the neoliberal impulse to make this about personal dispositions and intentions and what's in people's hearts. Let's just talk about what happens with structures and outcomes. And I would argue, as you have yourself, or as I think is common knowledge, right, in situations in which we give authority figures of any race, like power to deal with young people whom we stereotype as unruly and difficult and violent as dangerous, those young people wind up getting shot, or at least a lot of young people wind up getting shot, and the young people who wind up getting shot are disproportionately ones who are black or Latino or presented as recalcitrant or noncompliant, naive disabled, right? And that that's just an outcome. It's an outcome whether or not we, whether or not the, the, the police officers or the teachers carrying the guns are virulently uh, racist in their hearts, or if they are literally colorblind and can't tell the difference. They can have, like, face blindness, for fuck's sake. Like, it doesn't really matter. The simple <laughs> structural outcome is that, you know, this is America. This is how violence gets distributed. Certain people bear the brunt of it more. 
Now, you could ask. Neoliberalism right? deters the social. The problem is neoliberalism deters the sort of sociological thinking. If you point this out, then you're obviously arguing that your average teacher is ready to just pull out their gun and shoot a, the black kid in their class for for talking back. Exactly. What is what is actually a good faith response to an absurd situation, namely arming such teachers, gets framed as actually being the caricature itself, right? Which is another like way that we basically depoliticize things. Like, how dare you insult teachers? I certainly wouldn't be executing my Latino students. Like, well, I, I imagine you wouldn't. Thank you. But also, like, again, schools are playing. There's already a ton of like violence in our schools. Right, 19 schools allow for corporal punishment. Um, there's already a ton, and that has caused fatalities, right? Like kids have kids have been restrained and died, right? They've been left alone. Kids have been left alone with restraints and hung themselves. Kids have died mysteriously from medical conditions. And shockingly, the disproportionate number of those fatalities, like the disproportionate number of those acts of violent discipline, are students of color and the disabled. It's all a race within broader like 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 bookkeeping. But let's just, just, just stipulate this. I want to like just get this out. I don't. I I I've, te- I've taught hundreds upon hundreds of students at all different levels. I've worked with, you know, in, in, in various inner city contexts too. Like I, I've done a lot, I, I have abundance of love and respect for the work that teachers do. And, and the idea of teachers deliberately executing their students is, is, a, is, a, is a horn to me as is, 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 is a lot of people I've heard from, right? But I think it's precisely because we already asked teachers to do so much that they basically become conduits for all these other types of oppression, that I feel like, why, why, why ask them to also be prepared to kill the kids that they're teaching? That's crazy. And the question is not, like, like is your, av- is your median teacher, what is their, like, moral quality? It's a, it's a aggregate sociological statistical question of, is adding more guns to the mix going to make things more or less safe? And one thing that this obscures, as you point out, is that there already is a lot of official violence in schools against students, not just corporal punishment, which is surprisingly still very you know pervasive across the United States, but also there are armed people in schools known as school resource officers, i.e. armed school police. And you know it feels like a, a few times a year or so, there is a viral video of a school police officer beating the crap out of a student. And there's also research on what the presence of these armed school police do. And what that research shows is that it makes students more likely to be arrested for what would otherwise be an in-school disciplinary offense. And it is this sort of securitization of, 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 of education that helps make make schools the the entry point that they have become in so many places to uh, to the school to prison pipeline exactly and and that puts to lie too a lot of the discourse about trying to stop mass shooters specifically right i i can i can direct you some stuff i've written about like the sandy hook event in particular right but there is a there already is a tremendous apparatus for surveilling and punishing and destroying the lives of young children who act out in our schools, right, um, or whose behavior is seen as acting out. There also is abundance of surveillance and, you know, institutional scrutiny of kids who give off red flags, right, as there were with Adam Lanza in the case of Sandy Hook. There, they, 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 one of the mother's friends called the police, like, several years before the event, being like, this kid is going to shoot up the school. He's got an assault rifle. He's threatened to do it. Nothing happens, right, because of the lack of legal like power to take away the guns from the mother. Um, 
But the reality is that those, the flip side of these disciplinary institutions that target vulnerable children of color and the disabled is that they actually also empower these other kids who, by virtue of their whiteness or various other types of privilege, can navigate the system with relative impunity, right? So it's not that there isn't already an abundance of red flags. It's not that we need to surveil more. We already do. It's that the way the system is designed is actually to penalize certain kids for some things and not for others, right? Um, there's also just another interesting question, too, and I, I, I want to, like, yeah, like, your work on, on school resource officers is really compelling, right? There's a lot of research that does indicate that, or the, here, it's a, it's a broader philosophical problem, if you don't mind my like, framing it, right? Where it's like, what does giving people the tools to hurt each other lead to, right? There's a lot of research that indicates that, for example, giving police officers not, quote-unquote, non-lethal weapons, right, tasers, et cetera, um, Actually, which which do kill frequently, right? People have heart attacks and die. But th that this doesn't give them, that this doesn't encourage de-escalation, right? That just because you have a gun and now an electrocution device on your hip doesn't mean that you actually wind up using neither, or using either less. You actually wind up using the taser more. Because the taser, right? the, it, it, yeah, because it's not a, the taser functionally doesn't work as a de-escalation from the gun. It works as an escalation from a control hold, for example. Exactly, right? And so, 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 so some of the, again, like this researcher, Scott Herschel, I think is quite compelling, like that giving, the, that a lot of these things that we, again, technical solutions to problems that should be political, we give people, quote unquote, non-lethal weapons, which they use not to substitute for the guns, because still people get shot in all times, right? One, one of three people killed by a stranger in the U.S. is killed by a cop. Like, that's a kind of crazy statistic. But, like, we give them these non-lethal means. They use them just to brutalize people. They don't use it in place of the gun. They use it in addition to the gun. And so, think again, thinking about what simply giving people having access to these tools leads to is, is a complicated question. And like, there's a philosophical dimension to it, right? There's a line in Homer that I think about a lot where it's like, you know, the blade itself incites the deeds of violence. This idea, it's like having the weapon you, you think about using it, right? But um, conceptually speaking, right, if there's a gun in, in play in a situation, the idea of a gunshot fatality as an outcome or a gun injury goes from non-existent to possible. Right. This is a trivial thing to say, but it's worth saying. Right. Like, and all of the I research that thumb. distinguishes the U.S. from other countries makes it clear that just quantity of guns is 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 like the biggest difference. Precisely. Yeah. We're it, it, like, like liberal, like, we're like, like totally normie, liberal, mainstream gun control advocates are just, you know, that they are right on that point. That is. Absolutely. And, and then when you break it down to but, and like, but also like even bracketing that point. Right. When you consider specific and, and there's. Sometimes people do like do this, this like kind of like cooking the results thing where they're like, well, the fact that you can get shot means that you will. No, that's not necessarily the case. Like the gun isn't going to jump up and shoot you on its own, right? But there is – it is absolutely the case that where you have circumstances in which guns are all – in which there is already violence, by which I mean um, suicidal self-harm, by which I mean physical or emotional abuse, by which I mean, you know, domestic abuse. Like, again, all these environments in which there's already violence, if you then add a gun to that mix, right, the chances of specifically lethal outcomes go up dramatically. Right. This is the, this is, the police will even tell you this if they're talking about, like, the, the way in which the arrival of guns into a community will change the body count from gang violence. 
right? If, keep, if people are just like stabbing and beating each other with, with, with bats, like, you know, people go to the hospital, like people, some people will die. But the moment there are guns in play, the lethality goes up. The same is true for like in your home. If there's already violence going on, if people are already trying to hurt each other, giving them a highly efficient killing device is more likely to produce lethal outcomes. And so that's like, again, it's, 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 it's hard to, to think about this without making like crude statements about like the ontology of tools, which is sort of a philosophical problem we don't really need to get into. But there is this way in which like we can think of guns in situations that are already violent as like lethality accelerators, right, or lethality precipitators even. And that – I don't see why that wouldn't be the case in schools, Right. If there are already situations that are chaotic where violence is already happening, you know, teachers do keep teachers are not immune from suicide. Teachers are not immune from workplace violence. Right. Why additionally arm them? I, I, I don't say it, 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 it gainsaying the inevitability of lethal outcomes seems to require so much cognitive and emotional work. Why can't we just like focus on something else instead? My last question is. It's pretty fascinating, as a lot of people have pointed out, that this this whole debate over arming teachers and more broadly over school shootings, that it was interrupted or intervened in in some way by this massive, successful teacher strike in West Virginia. And I wonder whether the fact that neoliberalism is in crisis right now, maybe more of a political crisis than an economic crisis, but some kind of crisis. Does that mean that the American gun culture that's sort of tethered to neoliberalism might be in crisis as well? And maybe this is wishful thinking and one doesn't necessarily follow from the other, but what do you think? It's a damn good question. And I don't know. I mean, like we're, we're in this moment now of inc- like, we're, this is a moment of incredible flux and change and possibility and risk. Right, and you can see how different players are trying to narrow the scope of possibility and diminish the horizon of, of you know, of what's imaginable and affect their own outcomes in terms of risk all the time. But there is like this question that's arising where it's like, well, what happens? What happens if and when teachers mobilize in a similar way vis-a-vis gun, vis-a-vis gun violence? Right, like it's not surprising that one of the specific triggers for the West Virginia teacher strike, or at least like the straw that broke the camel's back, was this bullshit fucking app that they were like, well, you're not going to get health insurance, but you know, clock in on your Fitbit that you get to walk ten miles a day. Or some other stupid bullshit, right? Like the, the, that was a bridge too far, and it feels like the being like, "Well, you're a teacher. Here's five hundred dollars to buy three quarters of a Glock. Now you're responsible for it, also legally and, and in terms of insurance." That also feels like a sort of an additional super added affront that could be a, a, a like a deal breaker. So, like, I'm, I am kind of hoping that, you know, to the extent to which, like. Don't hear me. Don't hear me as like asking the teachers in West Virginia or Oklahoma to, to rally against gun control. They can pick and choose their own battles, and, and I stand in solidarity with whatever they do. Uh, but there is this way in which I feel like people realizing that the forced choices and misery they're being forced to accept or that they've been gradually lowered into is not necessary and can be rejected in toto and that they're doing that via cross-sectional, intersectional like movement building, that probably is a way to fight this. Um, but what I will say simultaneous to this is that the American gun culture, much as neoliberalism is a very adaptable thing, Right, and we can have we have current you know, they're entirely possible and existent repressive carceral neoliberal regimes of gun control, much in the same way as we have a very particular neoliberal regime of gun permissiveness, right? So neoliberalism can adapt, but also the um, 
the arming of Americans and specifically the arming of the American male in terms of that ideological framework that we've been talking about, about the disposability of lives of others, about the prerogative to just be armed in space, uh, to share with other people. That's something that pre-exists neoliberalism. The neoliberalism is capitalized on and in various directions, both pro and con, but that is a basic part of like the American national project. And that's something that I don't know, honestly, how we unbuild or undo. Um, it's a it's question a of reckoning with settler colonialism. Pretty much, uh, pretty much. Um, and it's, I don't see a lot of movement on that from like the Democrats right now, but like, I do think that there is something like, I must say coming from one of the Parkland survivors was on TV the other night and, uh, was like, and his response to his hog, uh, his response to one of the questions, like, do you want more school resource officers? Was no, 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 I don't, because that, we no, we don't, because they just exist to arrest uh, black and Latino kids and put them in the school prison pipeline. So, like, maybe that there is the, this sort of, like, siloing of consciousness and of affect and outrage and care that the neoliberal sort of hollowing out of the political has done over the past couple of decades, it seems like that may not be taking with some of our youth. And that is really, really inspiring. Um, and also, it seems to be, they also seem to be developing a consciousness vis-a-vis uh, racialized power and gendered power that may also help us become less violent in, in, in the gun control, gun violence domain as well. At least we can hope. I think that there are a lot of data points that suggest that the up-and-coming generation has a lot that the left should be excited about. I sympathize with that. It's satisfying. It's only like stress. Like, like, and, then, and then that's, and, then, and I think the key thing is not to be like, well, let the kids, the kids, the kids, the, like the kids, the kids aren't the future, right? Because the future doesn't exist. The future is something, so they, my friend Joseph Henderson has written a lot about climate change. They, they, it's, it's really brought home this insight to me. Like the future does not exist. The future is a construct in the present that we together make. It's a, it, 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 it's a way that we pre- pre- prepare our expectations and justify our actions in the now. So no, kids are not the future. Kids are political agents trying to have something happen. And the proper, I think, leftist response, to the extent to which I can stipulate what that is, is to embrace that in solidarity and help them make it happen and help them make it better and help it take. So it's a call to action, not a call to passivity. And I really hope people take them up on that. Well, Patrick Blanchfield, thank you very much. Always a pleasure, man. Thank you so much. Patrick Blanchfield is a freelance writer and associate faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after briefly finding himself at a loss for words before the specter of American gun culture, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does telling your friends. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And please find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks a month is a huge help. 